This episode of The Bible for Normal People is brought to you by Baker Academic. Find out how Baker Academic serves the academy and the church, as well as browsing some of their latest releases by going to bakeracademic.com ends. You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Today we're going to be talking with Mark Brettler, who's a professor of Judaic studies at Duke University. And what are we going to be talking about? Well, on being Jewish and a biblical scholar, that's the topic today we're going to discuss with Mark. Uh, A few years ago, he and I worked on a book together with uh, the late Roman Catholic New Testament scholar Dan Harrington called The Bible and the Believer, where we all talked about this issue, about how to be sort of a person of faith and also be a, a, a biblical scholar from a Jewish point of view, a Protestant point of view, and a Roman Catholic point of view. That's where I got to know Mark, and I just found what he had to say was so fascinating. And, you know, even more than the books that he's written, more accessible perhaps, is his website, Torah.com. You can't forget that title, Torah.com. And that is an educational organization that's founded by Mark to advance the understanding of the Torah and to make biblical scholarship accessible to the broader Jewish community. So it's like the Jewish version of this podcast. And they were here first. But that's true. It's, it's the Jewish version of, uh, of, in many ways, the Jews were here first, uh, of, of trying to have that difficult, well, not trying to, but actually having the conversation between what does it mean to have, be a part of a religious tradition and also a part of, of a movement that tends to challenge that tradition. And how do you bring those two yeah. things together? And how do you live and sleep at night? And it was great having the conversation with Mark because he is a kindred spirit in that. Really uh, having one foot firmly planted in the academy. Just a great scholar. Really doing good work. But also wanting to make what those the outcome of that accessible to right. to the average uh, Jewish community. Exactly the kind of person we want to talk about on this podcast, the Bible for normal people. Exactly. Right? So let's have that conversation with Mark Brettler. I came to understand Judaism more as a system of doing rather than a system of belief and faith. I believe that Judaism insists on the importance of truth, including the importance of historical truth and the importance of intellectual truth. And a lot of what I've been doing over the last decades has been trying to change Judaism from within. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support meaning you're connected to WordPress experts any time you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, hi, Mark. Thank you for joining us um, on the Bible for Normal People. The first kind of question Um, that we want to ask is, you know, one of the most influential essays 
um, that I read in graduate school was with, by John Levinson in a collection of ed- essays that he wrote where he really talked about the dual role that he played, um, kind of wearing two hats. On the one hand, he was a biblical scholar who had to engage and had a responsibility to engage with the text in a certain way and ask some really difficult questions. And on the other hand, participate in a religious community in a faithful way. He talked about some of the tensions there, and it sounds like maybe you have some of that in your background too. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to grapple with those roles? Sure, it'd be my pleasure. And again, I'm really delighted to be your guest. I'm an accidental Bible scholar. I entered undergraduate education expecting to be an economics major, took a course in the, on the Book of Psalms with the late Professor Nahum Sarna, mm. and really never looked at economics again. I found the Bible to be much more compelling and much more interesting to me, especially at an intellectual level. It is really true that coming from a traditional Jewish home, at first I was very challenged by some of the notions that I heard concerning the scholarly study of the Bible, including some of the notions that I heard in that very class. So, for example, I could not believe that this professor was insisting that David probably wrote none of the Psalms. But I started to understand the scholarly perspective, and I remained a committed Jew throughout, involved in the Jewish community as I continued in my study of biblical texts. But nevertheless, certain attitudes toward my Jewish belief changed. I came to understand Judaism more as a system of doing rather than a system of belief and faith. And I believe that Judaism insists on the importance of truth, including the importance of historical truth and the importance of intellectual truth. And a lot of what I've been doing over the last decades has been trying to change Judaism from within so that the type of study which I engage in and many other Jewish and non-Jewish biblical scholars engage in, historical, critical, or contextual study of the Bible, I really try to show how this can fit within the context of believing and really can enhance your belief rather than get in the way of it. That's a tall order, isn't it? Uh, It's a tall order. I think a lot of people come with very, very strong preconceptions. But if, if you walk with people gently and you lead them gently, and you really, at least in my case, show them two things. Number one, why many of the arguments of critical biblical scholarship are so very compelling at the intellectual level. And number two, how Judaism really is able to accommodate these beliefs. I think that it it is possible to gain many followers. Can you give an example, Mark, of a compelling historical critical insight that maybe appears challenging, but yet can be incorporated into a Jewish way of thinking. That's, and I'm thinking from a Christian point of view, that's sometimes very difficult to do. But maybe you can give an example that would help. Sure. I would actually start at the very beginning of the Bible, where I think one of the insights which has stood the test of time of historical critical scholarship is that there is not a single story about the creation of people, but that there are two stories. The first one from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, ending in the middle of verse 4 of chapter 2, and the second one starting in the second part of chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 3. And I usually show this to people by asking them a very simple question. It's the sort of question that you have at the beginning, if I recall correctly, of who wants to be a millionaire, where you have to put certain things in one order of one type or another. And I ask people, please put the following three elements in order according to the beginning of the book of Genesis. 
the creation of man, the creation of woman, and the creation of land animals. And I tell people to open their Bibles, and I give them a couple of minutes. After all, you know, this isn't a quiz show. They can, <laughs> use, the text, they can use the text in front of them. And they realize quite quickly that there are two different answers to that question. That in Genesis chapter 1, first, land animals are created at the beginning of day 6. And then man and women are created later at the end of day 6, quite possibly created simultaneously. It depends on exactly how you read the Hebrew. So if you want to order according to Genesis chapter 1, it is land animals, man and woman. Then when you read Genesis chapters 2 and 3, you see that man is created first. God realizes that man is lonely, and God creates various animals as possible companions for man. That is not a terribly successful experiment. <laughs> and after that fails, and that also is important to realize, God fails in an experiment very, very different than the tone and style of chapter one. After that failure, woman is created as a partner for the man. So thus, in Genesis chapter two, the order is man, land, animals, woman. Mm -hmm. Now, most Bible readers, even people who know the Bible really, really well, until you ask the question in that way, they do not see that blatant contradiction between chapter one and most of chapters two and three. So a first step is really just encouraging them to read the text carefully and to see the contradiction. Then what emerges from that is that this is one of many examples where it is really impossible, as far as I am concerned, to speak of the Torah in a single voice. And I try to make my students aware of the fact that there are multiple voices which are embedded in the Torah text. This is simply one example. When I'm teaching, I give many more examples. So really the first step is just to establish the scholarly facts on the ground. People are often astounded by this, and many people think that is absolute dogma to believe that the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, is speaking in a unitary voice. And then I just start to probe with people, why is it so important for you to believe this? Might it not be actually more constructive in terms of understanding the world to have a central religious document which expresses multiple perspectives rather than a single perspective? Uh, many people do not think of that. Many people think that religious, religious texts need to have only a single perspective. And I might actually say that in some ways, when I work with Christian groups, it's easier to explain this, because after all, you do have the four Gospels, which do offer different perspectives on a set of events. And then what I try to do is to analogize from those later texts, from the New Testament, in the case of that audience, to the earlier biblical texts, earlier texts from the Hebrew Bible. So that's the way I try to encourage people to see that particular perspective. Is there anything in that that um, is? There, I mean, <clears throat> Judaism is such a diverse tradition, as is Christianity. So not not to be simplistic, but is there something about Jewish systems of thinking that might be more open? to multiple voices. Um, and I asked that because as you started beginning uh, speaking about Christianity, I think Jared and I can both attest that many of the Christians we know would be viscerally alarmed at the thought of multiple voices, even though they have the gospels, 
they don't think about it very much because, yeah, they're four, but they're basically saying the same thing. <laughs> same with so Chronicles and Kings and Samuel King. Right? So, so is there anything about Judaism that might prepare people more to hear that? I think that there might be, although I think that the Christian community might really be encouraged to get over their visceral reaction in the same way that I need to encourage some Jews whom I talk to to get over a visceral dislike of what I am saying and a visceral belief that it is absolutely impossible. Which is easy think, to do if they don't sign your paychecks, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> You know, thankfully, that is not an issue I've ever had. I have, I have ever had. <laughs> but, but, but back to your question, it may be a little easier in Judaism because of the basic structure of rabbinic literature. Um, very often, if you look at a rabbinic text such as the Talmud or one of the Midrashic texts, one of the texts interpreting various biblical episodes, it is not the case that a single interpretation is given, but dispute is very much embedded within these texts. In some cases, these disputes are resolved, but in many cases, they're not resolved at all. And you'll simply have an interpretation, then you'll have the word or the words which means another matter or another interpretation and that will be followed by a different often contradictory interpretation and then you'll have that followed by yet another interpretation introduced by the words another interpretation so there's something in the structure of rabbinic literature which fundamentally suggests that different sometimes mutually exclusive interpretations are an okay part of the tradition. So this, so this is also embedded in two other things that I would like to point out. In terms of how the Bible is, import, is interpreted, there's a famous rabbinic dictum, Shiv'im Panim La Torah. Literally, the Torah has 70 faces, but what it really means is there are 70 facets of interpretation to any biblical texts, where, of course, 70 is a rounded typological number. And that doesn't say, as part of the dictum, that interpretation number 63 is always the right one. And one last example of what I think might make this easier in terms of Jewish tradition is the structure of the rabbinic Bible, which is the way in which the Bible has been read for the last few centuries. It has the biblical text. It may have the Aramaic translation of the biblical text, the Targum. And then it will have a set of biblical commentaries, such as the famous commentary of Rashi or the com rationalist commentary of Ibn Ezra, and these guys totally disagree with one another, but mm. they are on the same page, mm -hmm. literally, but not yes. figuratively. <laughs> and literally, these are comments found around the periphery of the biblical text, correct? Exactly, okay. all explicating the biblical text. Right, right. So that really provides a model of, again, there are different words I could use, textual multiplicity, I actually like the word polyphony, and all, and for some people I admit this is not an all, but all I am doing is trying to move this model for polyphony, for multivocality rather than univocality, back to the Bible itself. Hmm. Right, and maybe you can, that fits right in with what I was thinking, Mark, is within the rabbinic literature, I think that does set up the reader today to... Um, be able to grapple with some of the things a little bit easier. But you talked about, you know, within historical criticism, the key of establishing the scholarly facts first. And I wonder, would, would you say, or how would you talk about the Bible's multivocality? Is that on purpose? And I think that's a question 
some of my uh, friends would be wrestling with where it's, you know, the, the rabbinic text is clearly okay with disagreement and it's not trying to do that. Where when we read Genesis 1 to 3, are we saying that it, that happened on purpose? There's a reason why there's two creation stories back to back or is it kind of the, the mentality of, well, they were just sloppy editors and now you're just trying to make up a reason for why it's okay that they're back to back. Yeah. I, I don't think that they're sloppy editors. I think that there is a reason or there are reasons. I don't think that the reason is exactly the same as the result. Hmm. So let me explain what I mean by that. And let me do this by using an analogy. Um, Let's imagine that at the end of a semester, I was asked to collate and summarize my teaching evaluations. Okay? Now, one way in which I might do that is to, quote, collate them and, quote, summarize them by picking the one that is absolutely the best, and disregarding all the others. Okay? You know, that might serve me well, but would not be terribly fair. Another way would be to represent a range of opinions. Now, going back to the formation of the Torah, it's clear, and I can give evidence for this, that the Torah does not include, let's say, all of the opinions about creation that existed in ancient Israel. So to give you a simple example, in the book of Job, in the book of Isaiah, there are all sorts of stories of creation which deal with monsters such as Rahab and Leviathan, who are not mentioned explicitly in the first three chapters of Genesis that deal with creation. So point number one, not all ancient Israelite traditions were incorporated into the Torah. But more than one tradition was. And I think that this happened because the editors or the redactors, the compilers, these are all similar but not identical terms, had a decision to make. They can choose one text or one set of traditions to be authoritative, which would have made the person who is responsible for that particular text extremely happy and would have made all the other people with different traditions unhappy, or I prefer using the word disenfranchised. I think this editor was interested in enfranchising different groups. And the way in which you enfranchise these different groups is by including the literature that each group whom you wanted to enfranchise held to be central to that group. Mm. This editor or these editors or compilers then wove this material together. And I'm sure the people from each group said, you know what, I really wish that this editor had chosen only my story but at least he included my story so I can live with it. <laughs> and in that sense, the Torah and the Bible as a whole is very much a compromised document. And I would actually argue that if we want to foster a civil society, which I firmly believe in, the redaction, editing, or compilation of the Torah is really a wonderful model mm-hmm. for how this might be done. All right, let's take a minute break and talk about our sponsor today, Baker Academic. So they published your first pretty groundbreaking book, right, P. Inspiration and Incarnation, Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament, which is now in its second edition. That's right, yeah. The, uh, I owe a debt of gratitude to Baker for really encouraging me to write things that inspire me and things that I really am passionate about. And so that was sort of the beginning of it. And having a 10th anniversary issue was just a wonderful thing. Yeah. So Baker Academics committed to furthering understanding within the context of the Christian faith. One of their latest books is called The Old Testament is Dying, a Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment by Brent Strawn. 
Uh, it's a book that Brueggemann has said is a book of urgent practical theology and that it merits wide attention. So if Brueggemann says something about that book, uh, you might want to consider it. And I have it too, it and so should you. Nice. So find that book and more at bakeracademic.com slash ends. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, Mark, let me, th- that leads to a question that, again, I hear a lot and maybe you can answer from your point of view. Um, how can we think of the Bible then as, let's say, revelatory or inspired? And you can answer that either from a personal point of view or from the point of view of how Judaism has traditionally handled this. But, you know, if the Bible is this compilation, as you just described, which to me is intellectually compelling, I don't know any other way, frankly, of explaining how the Bible came to be than, than the way you're describing. But then how do you forge that together with that other hat, you know, the religious community hat where the Bible is revelatory or inspired, it's from God in some sense? Right. Well, I'm part of that religious community, even though I may have beliefs that differ for many people within that religious community. So again, I think a difference in this, I may be wrong here, and I'd be happy to have some pushback here, is how religious communities are formed. Are they formed predominantly on the basis of belief, or are they formed predominantly on the basis of practice? So I am part of an observant religious community where people have similar practices in terms of observing the Sabbath, in terms of eating kosher food, in terms of certain ethical mandates. And it is those norms, I prefer that word over law, those norms which help form the community. And within that community, different people have very many different sets of belief. So that's how I feel comfortable in that community. 
And that's how that community feels comfortable with me. In most Jewish communities, including in many observant Jewish communities, there are not theological litmus tests. But now back to two terms that you used, the term inspiration and the term revelation. Uh, I, I think that the term inspiration is used much more within the Protestant community as it is used as opposed to within the Jewish community. And quite honestly, I'm not always so sure exactly what the term inspiration means. Neither In other words, okay. So, so frankly, that's why I tend to avoid the term. Uh, is there a difference between Shakespeare as inspired and an author of a section of the Bible as inspired. After all, in English, we use the same word inspired for both of them. But again, for me, the key is that it is not as central a term within Judaism, although it certainly does exist. There is a notion of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, which is involved in the composition of biblical books according to many rabbinic sources. Mm -hmm. So I I downplay inspiration. Mm -hmm. Now, revelation is a much harder one. And here, Pete, on your website, I saw that you're highlighting Ben Summers' book. Mm -hmm. So uh, Benjamin Summers, as a center of his theology, which takes critical biblical scholarship very, very seriously, and also in a way slightly different from me, sees it as proto-rabbinic. For him, revelation as a historical fact is fundamentally important. And for him, as I understand his book, this is simply an element of faith. In other words, there's nothing about the biblical text that says that this particular event needs to be taken as a historical truth more than, let's say, the existence of Abraham or the exodus from Egypt. For me, revelation is less important. Mm -hmm. I do not know. I'm I'm frankly agnostic concerning revelation. I do not know if there was a Sinai event. If there was a Sinai event, I certainly do not know which of the various sources that depict it, especially in Exodus and Deuteronomy chapters four and five, gets it right. Mm -hmm. Um, What is really important for me, this is a story which my ancestors created and reframed and reframed as an explanation for the origin of the Bible, for the origin of the Torah. The fact that it is not historically true uh, does not bother me at all. For me, and I wrote about this in the volume, The Bible and the Believer, which I co-authored with Pete and with the late Daniel Harrington, Mm -hmm. for me, the importance of the text comes from the community who has declared it in a variety of ways and a variety of actions to be important and sacred. It does not come from any historical fact that is related in that text such as Revelation at Sinai. And I'll say, you asked me if that's a typical Jewish position. Uh, I'd say for most people that is, that is probably not a typical Jewish position. But again, I don't know that there is a single typical Jewish position on any of these theological issues. Right. Yeah, my students ask me occasionally, how did Jews think about this? And I say, you've got to be kidding me. 
Right. Well, so, I have you know, no idea. There is no t- there's no typical Christian way of thinking of things. Right. I mean, I could do the reverse right. for the three decades I taught at Brandeis. Occasionally, a student would ask me, well, what's the Christian perspective? Again, part of why both Judaism and Christianity have survived for several millennia, to my mind, is because they have not had a single perspective And they have been fluid over time and have been able to respond to different historical and intellectual challenges. And I see this fluidity as a point of strength rather than a point of weakness. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, um, I have a question about, you know, you talk about the community and the importance of that, the text within the community and how that's updated through interpretation. What Are there some practical implications for, say, Christian congregations or Jewish communities of faith for how that, you know, one of the things that I'm often asked by pastors is, okay, as a community, we reinterpret, but we don't necessarily write it down. So there's this kind of crystallization or we stop writing the interpretations down, they stop being sacred for us. Are there practical ways to overcome that where you can really see the importance of modern day interpretation um, rising to that level or to some semblance of importance at the same level as a rabbinic literature or the original text? Yeah, it's an excellent and important question for both of the communities, Jared. Uh, I think that there are two opposing views in Judaism concerning this. Uh, One standard view is the view of the decline of the generations. And that, of course, anything we say now is inferior to what previous generations have said. Mm -hmm. There also is a second view, and again, this has some resonance within the Protestant community of continuing revelation. And if there's continuing revelation, that means that what is revealed or inspired or whatever word you'd like to use in the year 2017 is just as inspired or revealed as something that might appear in early rabbinic literature. Mm -hmm. Uh, The person who is best known for this view is the feminist scholar, Tamar Ross, whose book I believe is called Expanding the Palace of Torah. And her notion of this expansion is that it is being expanded through revelation that is happening even today. And you see this notion in some classical rabbinic texts. So one of my favorite texts, which directly addresses your question, which appears, if I remember correctly, in the Talmud of the Lands of Israel, it says that the Bible, the Talmud, the Midrash, all sorts of rabbinic traditions, even something that some students will one day teach. All of these things were already said to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, that's really an amazing perspective because it is not limiting revelation to a particular time period. But it is saying that even something totally unforeseen that some scholar may teach or say in the future already has the authority as if it was said to Moses on Sinai. So in that sense, that particular set of Jewish traditions, whether it's reflected in that notion cited in the Talmud of the Land of Israel, or the notion of continuous revelation, really can suggest that what scholars are saying and suggesting today need not be seen as inferior to earlier canonical texts, 
such as in the case of Judaism, the Babylonian Talmud. Mm. Mm. Thank you. That yeah, that yeah. touched exactly on the question. Boy, there's a lot happening there. Um, Mark, <laughs> let me let me ask you another uh, brief question. Uh, I hope it's a brief question, but. Um, from your point of view, are there elements of historical criticism that are particularly problematic or challenging for some iteration of Judaism? Pick one. Um, you know, more than others, are there some that sort of like, yeah, this is this is really a problem for most people, as opposed to maybe some other historical critical views. As you well know, Pete, you might ask a brief question, but that doesn't mean that the answer is going to be brief. <laughs> true, uh, true. <laughs> Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. I think the best example of a problem within classical uh, historical criticism is its formulation by the great and brilliant scholar Julius Wellhausen, who in 1878 published a book, which in a later iteration, iteration was translated into English as Prolegomena to the History of Ancient Israel. In that book, which uses the historical critical method, he develops a thesis, and he's not unique in this, but it is best expressed in him, where it is not merely a notion that you have different competing ancient notions in ancient Israel, but a historical development of from a once wonderful Judaism, which was free and hardly had any rituals to it, to a more ritualized Judaism, and eventually to a fossilized Judaism. Now, although he doesn't say this, it is generally agreed that the purpose of this particular synthesis is to say that Judaism started out really well 
as a good pre-Christianity. Judaism ruined itself by becoming highly legalistic. That's a word that he uses very often, necessitating a second revelation through Christianity to correct the problems of Judaism. Now, I will point out that Wilhausen was as anti-Catholic as he was anti-Jewish. He was a firm Protestant in terms of his belief of the place of ritual within religion. In other words, that this is something harmful rather than something beneficial. And that, I think, would be the most prominent example of a particular expression of the historical critical thesis, which would be very detrimental to Judaism. Now, there's also an important history to this. Because Wellhausen was the great synthesizer, and his book was widely read, for many years, certainly through much of the 20th century, Judaism was deeply... Um, skeptical of the entire historical critical venture because it identified it with Wellhausen and his anti-Jewish, the anti-Jewish notions that stood behind his thesis. Mm-hmm. What I and others are trying to say is, excuse the cliche, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. In other words, the tools that were developed by Wellhausen and others are valuable tools. Let's see if we could find a different synthesis, which could be, first of all, more historically correct, and secondly, more compatible and more, with, and more sympathetic to Judaism. Right. That's very helpful, Mark. Thank you. Well, listen, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. But first of all, thank you. This has been fascinating. We'd love to have you on again to talk about a whole host of things that um, I think would be really beneficial for people to hear. Um, just as we close, uh, are there any books that you're currently working on or any of that have come out recently? And, and where can people find you on the internet? Sure. Because well, people first do all, that nowadays, Mark. They actually use the internet to find people. Did you know that? Uh, well, I, I thought people only read scrolls. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so thank you very much for yeah, informing me of, of this new reality. Uh, and thank you for your wonderful and thoughtful questions. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, It'll be a few years from now, but the main project I'm working on is a commentary on part of the Book of Psalms, but more recently, a second extensively revised edition of the Jewish Study Bible, which I co-edited with Adele Berlin, was published by Oxford University Press. I think you don't have to be Jewish to benefit from the Jewish Study Bible. I assigned it in my classes, Mark. I assigned it in my I, classes. So. I, I appreciate that. Uh, so I also need to mention that the book, which I wrote with Pete and with Dan Harrington, The Bible and the Believer, How to Read the Bible Critically and Religiously, is out in paperback. And I'm very happy to report that in September, the second edition of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which I've edited along with Amy Jill Levine, whom I gather will also be one of your guests, uh, will be published as well. And that's expanded in all sorts of ways. Oh, that's That's been a, a very, very interesting and meaningful project for me. In terms of where you could find me on the internet, Uh, The best place is on a website which I co-founded called thetorah.com, T-H-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. The first is all one word, which I was encouraged to (coughs) co-found, excuse me, which I was encouraged to co-found by a very religious Jew 
who was upset at the fact that there were no resources for observant Jews that tried to show the possible place of critical or historical critical biblical scholarship within the Jewish world. So this website has been going on for several years. Uh, we follow the pattern of the weekly Torah reading, adding a critical article every week, one or more, concerning the Torah reading or concerning one of the festivals. And we also have a whole set of introductory articles which deal with different perspectives on how, at least from a Jewish perspective, traditional belief and critical scholarship can be reconciled. So, again, many non-Jews have availed themselves to this particular resource. Uh, I'm actually quite surprised that no one within the Christian world has tried to put together such a website, but that is certainly another place that people can go, and many readers are very surprised that views that might be expressed within Judaism can often be very compatible with what the Christian believer might think or feel. Right. Well, and it's an amazing site too. So thank you for pointing that out. And thanks again, Mark, for being with us. And we had a great time and let's do it again. That's great. I look forward to doing it again. It's been a lot of fun for me. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for tuning in for our conversation with Mark Brettler. Please make sure you check out his book that he wrote with Pete and the late Dan Harrington, The Bible and the Believer. He also has a book, How to Read the Jewish Bible, and then he co-edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament with the previous guest that we had, A.J. Levine. Yeah, that's so, not your typical study Bible for Christians to read. It's got a lot of notes about Jewish perspectives on things that Jesus says or Paul says. Very, very interesting. Yeah, so check that out. Absolutely. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pete Enns and on Facebook at Peter Enns. You can check out what I'm doing on my website, thebiblefornormalpeople.com. And all sorts of things like that, my speaking schedule, some of my newsletter, etc., etc. But most importantly, you can continue conversations with the rest of us on interesting topics like the one we just had today. Excellent. We look forward to having you join us next time.